How do you learn to program when you're working in a vacuum? Sure, there are resources on the internet, but sometimes just bouncing ideas off other people in person makes a huge difference. Join me along with Rusty Gregory as we discuss how he's learning and teaching Python in a small town in Vermont. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 194, recorded January 4th, 2019. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. Hey everyone, before we get to our conversation with Rusty, I want to tell you about a new course we just launched, Introduction to Ansible. This one was created by Matthew Mackay of Full Stack Python. If you're involved with deploying a web app or managing servers, especially Python web apps, you owe it to yourself to check out Ansible. It provides a declarative way to provision, configure, and evolve infrastructure and applications. What makes it even better is it's written in and can be extended in Python. Check out the course over at training.docpython.fm. Corporate and team options are available too. Now, let's talk with Rusty. Rusty, welcome to Talk Python. Wow, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Super excited to talk about learning Python and, and teaching Python in your world. But before we get to all that stuff, let's just start with your story. How do you get into programming in Python? I've been playing around with the web for quite a long time. I had a basic class in, in high school uh, back in the early 90s. And then um, basically I started to work on the school webpage when I got hired out of school and uh, taught myself HTML and CSS and kind of made the transition from using what WYSIWYG editors into using Notepad++ and learning the code that way. I think that's really interesting. You know, I don't feel like WYSIWYG editors are, are really much of a thing these days. They used to be big. I don't know if people listening like realize how big they were. There was there was Front Page and there was Dreamweaver and there was Visual Studio with its ASP.NET stuff. And it, you know, it was very like program. It was like write your website in Word. I feel like um, once you went to CSS, that WYSIWYG editors couldn't really keep up with it. So uh, then yeah. after that, yeah, you yeah. were just better off typing in code. I was thinking that as well. WYSIWYG editors, like I guess the sort of the best they could do was like tables. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Here's your like, table, change the color in your table if you like it, stretch yeah. it to the right. I mean, didn't the early days of the web feel like a lot of borderless tables? That was crazy. It really was. Uh, everything was a table and merged cells and all that kind of stuff. It was great. But then once you once we had many different sizes of screens to deal with, uh, it didn't really meet the the needs of what we were going to. And then <laughs> Mobile, there's no way you could do a table-based design in mobile. Yeah, you don't hear too much about responsive tables these days. No. <laughs> when I first started teaching uh, HTML, we had to design two different sites, right? There was a mobile site for something, and then there was a regular site. Oh, that's right. I remember. Do you remember the .m domains? Or like, if it was, you know, talkpython.fm, it would be m.talkpython.fm. I totally forgot about that subdomain. And there was all the horrible converters that you could use to uh, <laughs> to just click a button and change your site into something that worked on mobile. And yeah, it was a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of work. Programming needs to be hard. It, it yeah. still is, but in a different way. I do want to just ask you a little bit about the CSS, since that's part of uh, your transition here. I feel like when you're trying to write websites, it's just so hard to get them to do what you want them to do and behave correctly until you, you know, sort of bite the bullet and learn CSS. And you know maybe it's a two or three week really hard studying period, but then on the other side, it just opens things up. I mean, you did a lot of CSS. How do you feel? It became a lot of fun, actually. It wasn't as much hard work kind of doing things. And in the early days of CSS, not all the browsers understood everything. So you had to, uh, there's only certain things you could do, and then you had to hack it back so it worked on IE or whatever it was that you were doing. But it was a lot of fun. It really added the fun and made me want to go further. I started just buying CSS books and, you know, everybody took you through the basics of one site here. We're going to start this site. We're going to end up with this site. So, I, you know, just designed three or four sites as I read through these books. And eventually, like every book I bought, I, I'd already read, you know, I already knew what they were saying. So I, I finally felt confident at that point. <laughs> That's really cool. I think the book that I learned CSS through was something called CSS, The Missing Manual. I think that was it. That's a good one. 
Nice. Okay, so you started out with front page and and WYSIWYG stuff, and you sort of graduated to real web development, right, with CSS. And where'd the story go from there? Basically, I started a little website business. We had uh, two daughters at a time instead of one, and I needed to earn some extra money. So I started doing small websites for people. And then I found that there was a job open at a junior college, and it was I was making just as much money teaching web design as I was creating sites for small businesses, you know, small local businesses at that time. So that was a great uh, jump for me. So I love to, I work at an elementary school during the day. So it was great to go and work with adults in the evenings and, uh, and kind of get my coding fix at the same time it was a lot of fun. And that got me into WordPress eventually. So, uh, and then as soon as I got into WordPress, there was, uh, you can use a lot of WordPress without having to get too heavy into databases or PHP at all. In fact, you really don't have to know anything about that if you don't want to. But when I started with WordPress, you still had to create your own database programmatically. And then uh, and the updates were as a matter of overwriting files and things like that. So it was a nerve wracking kind of uh, process. So I had to learn a little bit more about PHP so I could fix things when I broke them. But I never was able to create anything in PHP. I was only able to... Uh, to just change things. It was mostly a read-only language for you. Correct, yeah. <laughs> but it was. I, I knew I wanted to learn it, so then I bought a couple of PHP books, and I could never, ever crack it. Uh, I never got past, you know, just trying to figure out what the difference between integers and and, and uh, everything. Not that that was too much, but it was, it was boring. So I never got into the part where I could get to functions or creating stuff in there. Yeah, PHP takes a lot of heat or negativity from real programming languages or whatever, but a lot of the web runs on PHP and, and WordPress in particular, like a serious amount of what you do on the web is interact with WordPress, right? And PHP. And of course, Facebook. I feel like I could go back now and it would be it would be easy because I've got the basics down, but I could never get past the basics. And, you know, every, every book I bought only showed me, you have to know these things so you can become proficient. So, uh, but I never got to the part where I was proficient. <laughs> I'd give up before then. Yeah, of course. Do you think that is because PHP is always... At least as I see it, it's always like mixed in with the web. So you're you're programming in a web page where something like Python or JavaScript, you can do it separately. Yes. See, sort of learn it in isolation and then bring it into the web. Right. There's a lot of moving parts when you're playing with, yeah, with something that's inside WordPress or, yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. For me, I couldn't really grasp uh, a lot of the programmatic programming concepts for me, writing functions, how those interacted, you know, sticking things in hooks, all that didn't necessarily make sense. I didn't have anybody to ask at the time. Uh, I live in a pretty remote part of the world and there's no formal training for any kind of those languages around here. There's no, uh, there's nobody I could ask, you know, other than message boards and message boards weren't even that huge at the time, actually, or at least yeah. mine, my experience with them wasn't very big at the time. I feel like there's a lot more communities out there that you can jump into these days. And we'll, we'll dig into that a, a little bit, a little bit later. Yep. So, yeah. So what are some of the, if you had, you know, not a lot of people or, or official training. Like, what are some of the resources you, you had available? There was a podcast, WP Tavern, I used to listen to a lot. Then he had a forum. There was a CSS Tricks was a great place. And uh, that gentleman also had a forum there. So I go to those places. There was a guy called Justin Tadlock, who was a big influence that uh, wrote a lot of the stuff about best practices and how to do things the right way when you're, when you're writing. I didn't really know there was such a thing as sloppy code and good code at the time. So I actually started to take some of his plugins for WordPress and just kind of change them to do things that I wanted. You know, I could I could open up as one of his plugins and then see how where he'd put different things and start to just change the language, you know, so it matched what I wanted to do and figure out how to do things that way. Yeah, that sounds good. So you gave us a little bit of what you do day to day, but maybe uh, expand on that just a little bit so folks know where you're coming from. Sure. I'm an educational technology specialist at a K-6 school here in northern Vermont, and I uh, spend most of my day kind of uh, doing staff training, uh, managing databases. I run the state testing for my school. Uh, I teach digital citizenship directly to kids. Uh, we work with the Hour of Code event and basically just kind of all around stuff. We have a hardware guy that does all the hardware stuff, but if you need to know how something works at school, then I'm usually the person that you ask. And if something's broken, we go to Josh. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. This, this keyboard doesn't work. Call Josh. 
Exactly. I'll, that if I can't fix it in 10 seconds, it gets moved on to uh, to him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, it sounds pretty interesting, like a bunch of different things. What does digital citizenship entail? Like, I can imagine things uh, about that, but maybe tell us what it means when you're teaching it. It's teaching kids what the correct behavior is online, how to get around, uh, you know, basically that uh, if it happens online, it's it's the same as if you'd done something to somebody in real life. It's also being aware of, you know, advertisements and like, you know, I taught a lesson on um, photoshopped images online and things like that. Just trying to get kids an awareness of uh, the digital world. Yeah, I think that's pretty important. I think it's going to get harder. It's going to get harder too. It is. A lot of kids are using technology, kind of not necessarily in the shadows, but not parents aren't aware of what's going on. You know, as long as the kids are quiet, a lot of a lot of the population that I work with, uh, the parents are kind of happy and then they don't ask a lot of questions. So it's kind of our job to make sure that they are aware of all these things that are going on out there. Exactly. I'm also a big fan of the hour of code. Uh, we kind of are a little bit out of phase with the right time to talk about it, but it's, you know, since it's usually December, but uh, maybe tell people real quick about the Hour of Code as well. Hour of Code's a movement that started about three or four years ago. I want to say maybe we're in the fourth or fifth year. And it's a movement to try and get every child uh, exposed to coding for an hour during the, during the school year, just, to, just an hour to get started. We try and get to every kid in school and make sure that they have an opportunity to code for an hour and just basically intro everybody to it. And it's also an intro for students and the staff, or sorry, the staff and the adults that work at our schools to try and get them exposed to what's what coding means and how easy it is to get started. We never really get in-depth in the Hour of Code, but it's really just designed to be an introduction. We're not trying to train everybody to be a computer scientist, but we want everybody to understand what goes on in their computers. Yeah, people will probably get tired of me saying it, but I really think that we don't need a whole lot more programmers, but I think we need a lot more people with some specialty that also have programming skills to amplify that specialty. I, I think the hour code is, is right in line with like that, like inspire you to think, Oh, this programming thing I could do. And I'm also interested in biology. So maybe, you know, some point down the road, you're like, Oh, I need to automate this thing. I can program that. I can figure out how to program that. That's exactly how we approach it at our school. And I think most schools are that way as well. You know, we don't expect everybody to, to do it for the rest of their lives, but we want people to be more than a consumer if we can help it. Yeah, uh, we definitely need more creators and, and fewer consumers. <laughs> what kind of technology do you teach? Do you teach Scratch or you said elementary school. So these are first or kindergarten to fifth sixth grade, something like that? Yep. I, we're K-6. So I basically, we don't get much further than Scratch. I've had a couple of Python students so far, but just very, very basic stuff. They're going on to middle school where they might have more opportunities there. So for the most part, if I can get kids and access to kids and, and get a small group of Scratch creators, then that's what I'll do on a regular basis. So we're starting to do that on a, you know, every six weeks, eight weeks, change out the group and just trying to get kids a little bit excited. And if I can get them to understand loops and uh, maybe if we get to a variables, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What grade levels did you go through this on? So fifth and sixth grade, sixth grade is where I get the most access to kids. So that's where I'll, yeah. I'll work most with the scratch. And that's the only place that I would really even try Python. Yeah, I think definitely you have to be a, a decent typist decent reading level and stuff to, to do written code. You know, I did an hour of code thing a couple of times at my daughter's school and we did it when she was in first grade, I think. And we ended up doing it with everybody from first grade through fifth grade over that, that week. And the teachers and the administration were kind of blown away about how much the first, second, third graders actually took to it and could do or like I don't even know if we could do it with them like they're really young by the end they had all these great little things built and it was super cool yeah it's a lot of fun actually with the hour of code we do do kindergarten all the way through sixth grade we do iPad apps from kindergarten first second grade from code carts mm -hmm. and then there's um, I want to say block box island uh, and there's a couple okay. of different activities and they're mostly just you know little drag and drop uh, five or six instructions in a row kind of thing and then uh, the hour of code has hundreds of activities that I let the kids, the older the kids get, the more choice they get. And that's where um, they first start with this program called Code Combat, which is the first time where they can actually start typing in code. And it's a great introduction to, uh, and that's where I, I got started actually with Python. I want to ask you more about Code Combat, but I realize I, I sort of jumped ahead on your story without letting you talk about how you went from WordPress into Python. No worries. It got a little long. So <laughs> yeah, WordPress, uh, I spent a lot of time in that for years and years and years, and then actually the hour of or the hour of code two years ago, I decided I was going to um, try and learn a little bit more 
actual coding because I, I don't know that. I mean, HTML and CSS is, is writing code, but I don't necessarily consider it. It's not programmatic code. So I started with Code Combat after the hour of code. And then I bought a subscription to it, which is was like $75 for a lifetime kind of access to all the activities. And it opened up a lot more activities. And I just banged away at it all summer. And uh, things finally started to stick for me. I, I finally was getting used to the syntax and all that type of stuff. And then um, I bought a couple other books after that. But Code Combat is really what kind of got me over the hump. And, you know, it's a, a program written for, uh, you know, fifth and sixth graders to, to expose them to coding. But I found it really, really valuable as kind of an introduction. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Linode. Are you looking for hosting that's fast, simple, and incredibly affordable? Well, look past that bookstore and check out Linode at talkpython.fm slash Linode. That's L-I-N-O-D-E. Plans start at just $5 a month for a dedicated server with a gig of RAM. They have 10 data centers across the globe, so no matter where you are or where your users are, there's a data center for you. Whether you want to run a Python web app, host a private Git server, or just a file server, you'll get native SSDs on all the machines, a newly upgraded 200 gigabit network, 24-7 friendly support even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guarantee. Need a little help with your infrastructure? They even offer professional services to help you with architecture, migrations, and more. Do you want a dedicated server for free for the next four months? Just visit talkpython.fm slash Linode. So I had not heard of Code Combat before, and I checked it out when you mentioned it in the show notes, and it is really cool. I really like it. Yeah, it is. It's it's a really great way. I think they've really kind of hit on um, just enough intro, you know, for each concept and then getting you to use it over and over again. It really was just kind of the repetition and it, it might bore some people, but it was really what I needed for everything to just kind of stick. Yeah. So maybe I'll try to describe it for folks and you'll have to correct my description because it's only from a little bit of experience. So you go in there, you've got this kind of like universe of places and you, you can go through these different areas and they teach or challenge you with different skills. Some of them are just calling functions. Some of them are strings, you know, like standard stuff. And it looks like you can do it in Python and Java, but I like to see that the default is Python, or JavaScript, sorry. The default is Python. That's that's really cool. And what I really like about it is it feels almost exactly like Scratch or one of these visual programming languages. But what I don't like about those is they they show you, well, here's this block and there's that. Here's the the move block and here's the loop block and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't feel like programming, right? It's still like a big step to go from getting experience with that to actually writing a program, right? It's like a totally different way to be. Right. Whereas, yeah. Whereas this it's, you actually start writing code from the beginning, but it's so supportive, right? You type like one or two characters and here's the list of the, the four or five things you can do. It's really nice. Right. Yeah. The autocomplete's really handy there. Um, yeah. It's a great bridge between the two. Yeah. So I, I definitely think this is a, a super cool thing for anyone, either really early learning to program or, you know, interacting with kids or other folks who are, are really early. This is, it's really great. Yeah. I wouldn't hesitate to recommend it uh, as a beginning place for children for certain. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I think I'm going to do some stuff. My daughter still has a few days vacation before school was back. I might do a few, uh, a few little dungeons or whatever you call them with her on this one. That's cool. So yeah, I, I like that. So you started you started messing around with that for Hour of Code and you're like, hey, this Python thing, not bad. Yep. Um, automate the Boring stuff was recommended to me. I got on to, um, I started working with a millennial uh, who introduced me to Reddit and uh, basically started searching on there for what people recommended to get started. And Automate the Boring stuff was, uh, was really quite high on the top of everybody's list as a good book to get started with. So I picked that up and basically I am the target audience for <laughs> for that book. That's cool. I've had Al Swigert on the show before and talked about his book, but maybe just summarize uh, like some of the stuff that's covered there and, and why you're the target audience. Basically, he says it's, you know, it's for people who just want to learn a little bit of code to help with their job. And basically, a lot of what I do is managing other people's information. So it goes through and it you know, talks about how to crop pictures and how to, uh, you know, with Python. And then it goes into how to work with spreadsheets with Python and just all these different like day-to-day -day tools that you could do. I mean, maybe if your job's, you know, building houses, maybe they're not day-to-day -to -day tools, but for me or somebody who works at an office, 
it was really, really eye-opening. And also I was, I wanted to learn programming at the same time. So it was really, really great for me. At the time I had, I was redoing the website and uh, had all the pictures for the staff members. And so I just got a disc with, you know, 600 pictures on it. And I wrote a program that went through and cropped each picture and resized it to the size that I wanted so I could put them on the website. And it was brilliant. I mean, that was like, I was hooked from the moment I did that. That was, yeah. You probably had that disc. You're like, this is going to take three days. Yeah. <laughs> it probably took spend- me longer to write that program than it would have if I had sat there and stared at the computer and, you know, clicked incessantly for five or six hours, but it was a great experience. <laughs> you escaped with your sanity though. That's right. Yeah. I think that that's really a, a great way to leverage some of the, the both programming skills you have and, and learn new programming skills. A lot of times I'll find myself doing something repetitive. I'm like, why is this just, this is a part of my day that is just really mundane and involves a lot of copy and paste or other mindless things. And then I'll just realize, you know what, if I just take an hour, write a little program to do this, then I'll never have to do this again. You know what I mean? And I'll always do it right. I see more and more opportunities for those types of things these days. You know, it's just a matter of uh, convincing uh, people at work that, uh, that that's valuable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I think that, that I mean, that's a challenge around software and management. Uh, let's put them as, <laughs> you know, it's even things like, should we take the time to write unit tests? Well, the the prototype works, just make it the real one. You know what I mean? Things like that. But when I was in that position working a lot, I people would ask me for estimates. Like, Michael, how, how long is this feature going to take? And that feature's estimate would include how long it took to write tests. It would include how long it would take to write like these little helper scripts and stuff. And I wouldn't say, well, this much for the helper script, this much for the test, and this much for the main feature. It was like, it's going to take four days. Okay. Right. You know, and I just, it was sort of a don't ask, don't tell type of, <laughs> like, I'm not going to talk about it. They're not going to ask me. I'll give them something good on a deadline that's better than they thought. So it'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So you had the Automate the Boring Stuff book. You said there's some other books that you also enjoyed. Yep. Uh, Head First Python, I really liked a lot. I teach with a Head First book for my HTML and CSS class. So I kind of went to that first because I, I like the style that they do. It Head First Python was great. Took me through and introduced me to Flask. And since I was already kind of a web guy anyway, that was an even bigger breakthrough for me. So that was a great book. And I learned a lot about Flask. Basically, I stopped that book as soon as I learned enough about Flask to go out and start Googling my own answers for things. <laughs> uh, and I was able to write my first couple of web apps, which was great. Yeah, you have a cool web app for the state parks in Vermont, right? Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, nobody's ever actually used it. A little known fact about that, but uh, not even my my wife, whom I kind of built it for. But uh, <laughs> so basically, there's this program in Vermont where if you go and you visit all the parks, they give you like these three worksheets that you work through and uh, you get certain points for, you know, if your kids build a, a rock tower on the beach, you take a picture and you get 10 points for it. It has to be in a state park or whatever. And you get 250 points, then you take all your pictures together and you send them off. So basically, if you look at a lot of the advertisements in Vermont, it's like us and our friends and our kids on the advertisements because they basically take your pictures doing all these activities and put them up all over the place. So anyway, at the end of the summer, usually... Um, all three couples, we all get together and sit there and go through all this paperwork and do everything to make sure we have enough points to send off these things. Then you get free, you get free entry to the parks the next year. So I was like, well, what if we, what if I could write something that would do this? So for us, well, I didn't really do it, but it did all the thinking for us anyway. So I wrote a little web app that you can uh, log in. I had to teach myself how to make cookies and things like that. So uh, you can sign in and then you can go through all of the activities are listed. You just choose an activity and then you hit submit and then you can upload your pictures to it. Uh, and then it keeps track of how many points you've got. You have to have so many things from each category. So it keeps track of all that information for you. It renames your picture with the name of the activity. And at the end, you can hit a little button and it zips all your pictures up and you can download it. And then you could just give that to the state and everything's all set. That's cool. So as part of the state program, do you get like something back? Do you just get posted? Do you get to be part of the ads or what What do you get for doing it? That's what you're getting. Uh, you mean the average user? Yeah, if the average user goes and goes through this thing that the states put together, yeah. Yeah, you get uh, yes, uh, free entry into all the state parks the next year. Okay, that's pretty nice. Yeah, it's a it's a decent trade off. You know, plus there's always a chance that you're going to see your kids on the on the poster when you go into this into the park or whatever as well. But yeah, so I thought that would be a great use. It was a great you know, it's basically all this was just bookkeeping, but I just kind of put it all into a little web app. 
And uh, yeah, and made accounts for all my friends. And I think not even my wife has used it yet. So, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun to great. It was a lot of fun to make. And uh, yeah, I learned a lot doing it. Um, it basically got me back into trying to learn a bit more about JavaScript because as soon as I started putting things on the in the app, I wanted them to look nice. So then I had to go back and, and JavaScript and jQuery and stuff has changed a lot since I played with it a bunch. So I got back into learning jQuery or, and then even trying to figure out if it was worth learning jQuery <laughs> still. So yeah. So you use Angular, so you use React. Exactly. Like, like, it took me days to figure J- out what all those were. <laughs> uh, I know. Sometimes it's uh, just, you know, a little jQuery will go a long ways. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I feel like this example highlights one of the things that can really help folks level up their their learning and and their programming skills is to build a little project app right and if you wanted to you could definitely expand this out make this a like really truly public a public website maybe even try to convince some of the folks to list it on like the park pages where they talk about these things stuff like that right so but just going through this project i'm sure you've learned so many things right Uh, it was yeah i learned i learned a huge amount about flask and about templates and and all those how everything interplays and again like i said i teach myself cookies to make sure it was like a sign-in only site and that was a huge and then how to store actual information uh you know i I stored everything in JSON files, and every time there was a new page, I'd unpackage it, and then I'd dump it back at the end and stuff. So I've, I figured out how to get around that. I don't have to do that anymore. And mm-hmm. this, So the next thing for me is to learn databases so I can uh, make sure I, c- I can stick it in a database and stop having to stick things in uh, in JSON files. So <laughs> Yeah, okay. for sure. And that makes a lot of sense. I think it's it's these things that really help help people learn, you know, these, these little projects, and that's great. Uh, you also talked about some other resources. What else you got? Yeah. Well, along the way, like I was trying to learn Python with the intention of eventually teaching it. So like my goal is to to teach it uh, in a school setting at some point. So I kept really kind of meticulous notes about everything that I was using along the way. Python Tutor, there's a, there's a website called Python Tutor Visualize. I think if you look for Visualize Python, you'll get to it. And it basically shows you, you know, you put your code in the left-hand side and then on the right-hand side, as you create a variable, it's kind of like a debugger, but it's very, very, very visual. You can actually see what each variable represents. So if you're trying to go through a loop and you're trying to figure out what happens inside the loop, you know, what X is equal to at this time, and, and what two things are actually trying to match or, or whatever, you can actually see that on the side. And that was a huge, huge breakthrough for actually being able to understand what happens in a loop and understand when I'm trying to work with a dictionary, like what that variable actually is at that point in time. And that was a huge breakthrough for me. That was a lot of fun to play with. Yeah, Python Tutor is a cool project. Uh, I feel up Guo. He's doing a lot of neat stuff with it. Yeah, so that was great. Repl.it was really good, repl.it. Since I teach in a school that is all Chrome, Book and I think a lot of educators these days are teaching in Chromebook schools. Repl.it was a great find, and it's since I found it like a year and a half ago, it's changed so much and matured a lot. Um, now you can host your own data files and things like that on there, and that was a great thing. So you can just put something in there and then hit the run button, and uh, you go. It's like having a little terminal. Uh-huh. That was a lot of fun to play with, and that's a lot of fun. Also, if you're looking for help online, you can put everything in there, and then you could just say, "Here's what I've got so far," instead of trying to go through and explain everything and like posting up a question on something like Reddit is really great for the answers you might get, but it takes a lot of effort to get it up there. Something like Repl.it makes it a lot quicker. You can actually show people what you've got. Right. Yeah. If you're going to say, hey, I'm having this challenge or why does this do this, right? Having something like a Repl.it link or maybe a gist or something like that, like where, where it's not just... I'm trying to use this function and it's behaving weirdly. It's like, okay, well, no one can help you with that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but this is this is super cool. You know, another resource that I think for uh, Chromebooks that's just recently announced, and they actually sponsored the show a little while ago, but I'm just saying this because I think it's really cool, is this thing called Coder.com. Yeah, I heard you talk about that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Coder.com is basically a Docker container that you get for free plus Visual Studio Code in the browser. So... If you're on a Chromebook or something, you can just go to coder.com and, and go there and you have, you know, a bunch of Docker containers and a, a little uh, terminal. You can install whatever you want, right? You have like root access to your Docker term, your Docker container, basically. So it's really nice. So anyway, just throwing that out there as another one. 
Uh, keep going. You got a bunch here. Right on. Yeah. So Socratica is a YouTube channel and they've got a lot of great videos describing little concepts, little bite-sized concepts in Python. I think it could work for a lot of languages, but it's Python specific. And that was a big help for just kind of understanding, you know, you want to figure out what a list comprehension is or something. You can go there and find that and they'll explain exactly what it is. You know, nice production values and uh, really, really informative. That was really good. Okay. That one I haven't heard of. I'll check that one out. Yep. Prettyprinted.com is a guy who's doing a lot of great YouTube videos on Flask specifically. A lot of, again, just little bite-sized things on flask and that was huge for me because there's not a lot of people out there that do very specific things for flask as far as youtube goes so that was a great find that's a good one that's anthony herbert and he's doing yeah he's doing good stuff as well uh with flat like he said mostly with flask but python uh-huh realpython.com and i know you've had uh, dan bader on your show a few times or quite a bit even yeah and real python is great i started reading it before he took it over it was a decent resource then and now it's just amazing like he's coming out with things so often i don't have time to catch up and read them all i know i, I can't read it either it's like <laughs> i'd almost appreciate if they released once a week and then i could actually keep up with it but yeah so it's it's been really 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 good i go there um you know like i started using the path lib library because uh, i read an article there and even though i feel it makes my life harder than just using os a lot of the times it's a great Great resource. Yeah, that's cool. I definitely agree with that one. I spend a lot of time on reddit.com to learn Python there. Just uh, kind of browsing sometime if I'm bored, if I have 10 minutes to kill, I'll go there. Or if I have a question uh, and I have the energy to um, actually go through it uh, and explain it, uh, I'll put stuff there. I've always, always had really good luck. Only one time has somebody said, did you read the docs? Yeah, which is like, yeah, like the worst answer ever. Yeah, Q and A sites on the internet. People can be mean, but I feel Learn Python's pretty nice. Yeah, as far as like actual sites, those are the those are the main ones that I'd pulled up, and I, I've been kind of recording. I've you know a Google Keep site where I just have any minor thing that I find, I'll throw on there. But those would be great places to start for somebody else who's in a similar position. You know, I was working with a guy before that uh, was learning Python, kind of around the same pace as me. Uh, I went with Flask, and he was doing a lot of data stuff. Um, he was a runner, so he was pulling his you know information out of Strava and playing with it and making maps and you know recording cool. different things. And he, he worked a lot with APIs, so I learned a lot from APIs from him. And then it was a lot of fun when we were working together, but he's, he's since taken a different job, so I'm kind of back on my own again. You lost your, your one colleague to bounce programming <laughs> ideas off, right? I did. I'm actually, I've got a, his replace that I've actually kind of talked into using a bit of Python for this and that. So uh, we've been playing a lot with, uh, just we use the Google <laughs> App Suite, and you can kind of interact with that with Python if you're clever. And uh, we've been trying to do that a bit lately. So yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. It can be a big challenge to be isolated like that, right? I mean, even in 2018, especially earlier in your career, to just be doing it totally on your own, you know, because I'm sure you've had lots of experiences like that where you're like, this is not working. I know there's a two-minute fix to make it work. And right. I've been trying to find that for a day now. And, and I still don't know what it is, but if I could ask somebody, they would just <laughs> yeah. show me that this is the problem, right? Yeah. And if I could craft a good question for a half an hour, I could post it on Reddit and I will get my answer probably by the end of the day. Or, you know, it'd be great just to have a relationship with somebody where you could say, hey, remember that project I was on? Well, I've gotten to this point and I have to do this or that or, you know, or, hey, can you come over and look over my shoulder? That would be great. But yeah, even in where I live, there isn't any place where I can go to take a formal Python class at like a university. You know, there's three universities an hour away from me. But that's it. And even then, there's there's very few opportunities for things like that. Like I'm ready to take a, some sort of a SQL course so I can try and get you know to the next level on that. And it's just it's tough to find things like that. I can't take a computer course online, not a formal one. I've taken you know I've I've, yeah. I've followed a few you know smaller courses online, but like a, a semester long courses is not really an option for me in my learning style. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of those to be honest either. I know there's uh, like the MIT and courses and stuff that you can follow along and the Stanford courses online. And I just feel like, you know, those are structured to be the format that somebody who is in a university every day taking six other or five other courses, and that's going to fit into their homework, attend course pattern a little here and there. But, you know, honestly, what you learn in those courses, you could condense that to a week or four days not, you know, 16 weeks 
if you didn't treat it that way. I get so much from the discussion, you know, the discussion in class at people's questions and going off on tangents and being able to read the room. There's so much, there's so much involved in that. So especially with the programming course, uh, it's something that I really want is a, an instructor in the room. Yeah, yeah. And those sort of MOOC classes, they don't typically have that. I mean, maybe they've got like a hired TA for the online version, but that's that's not the same. Right. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Rollbar. Got a question for you. Have you been outsourcing your bug discovery to your users? Have you been making them send you bug reports? You know, there's two problems with that. You can't discover all the bugs this way. And some users don't bother reporting bugs at all. They just leave, sometimes forever. The best software teams practice proactive error monitoring. They detect all the errors in their production apps and services in real time and debug important errors in minutes or hours, sometimes before users even notice. Teams from companies like Twilio, Instacart, and CircleCI use Rollbar to do this. With Rollbar, you get a real-time feed of all the errors so you know exactly what's broken in production. And Rollbar automatically collects all the relevant data and metadata you need to debug the errors so you don't have to sift through logs. If you aren't using Rollbar yet, they have a special offer for you, and it's really awesome. Sign up and install Rollbar at talkpython.fm rollbar, and Rollbar will send you a $100 gift card to use at the Open Collective, where you can donate to any of the 900-plus projects listed under the Open Source Collective or to the Women Who Code organization. Get notified of errors in real time and make a difference in open source. Visit talkpython.fm rollbar today. So I, while you're throwing out these ideas of places people can go and check out stuff, and I think they're all uh, really well, really good ones, a uh, couple th- also I'll throw out there is you talked about Code Combat, which I think is really cool. There's also Check IO, which is a similar idea and has Python. I kind of feel like Code Combat is better for beginners, whereas this Check IO is is really nice, but it's you kind of have to be able to program directly, right? It's it's like more free formed answers. But it's, it's pretty cool as well. It's kind of a similar gamification. The thing that I like about that is you can compare your solution to other solutions uh, right. that other people have. So you can see, like, here's the five ways this was solved. And I always find, like, like I learned different things about my own programming style by comparing the answers. For example, I realized that I implicitly optimized for performance considerations, Whereas I didn't think I was doing that. I'm just like, I'm just going to solve this. But I had solved it slightly more complicated. Go, oh, yeah, I could probably use this other simpler thing, but this is going to be a better answer. <laughs> you know what I mean? As far as problems go, I think that's probably a good one to have. <laughs> yeah, probably is. It probably is. But it just like it it made me realize that like that's a thing that I do because I didn't even notice, right? But right. once you compare your answer to five others, you're like, well, why is this so short? I'm like, oh, because you could have done this, but I didn't actually want to do that because you know whatever. And also uh, the code challenges platform from PyBytes, uh, similar similar check IO that you kind of got to write proper code, but. Uh, that one's nice. I'll throw in um, Code Wars as well while we're talking about that. Code Wars is a very similar one again. You grab an account and then they throw like, there's like eight different levels and you work your way up the levels, but it's um, it's language agnostic. So you can solve the different issues with whatever language you choose or multiple languages or things like that. And again, once you, once you finish, they'll actually have tests that are written that uh, they'll run against your code. So, you know, if you didn't... Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, if you didn't... Um, make everything lowercase so it works through this the, you know it'll fail the tests or things like that so that's a pretty neat one i find i never usually have the energy to just go and pick out a <laughs> a random problem that because they're they get pretty complicated pretty quick yeah yeah i totally totally agree so i one more i'll throw out real quick is anvil anvil.works i had them on the show as well and basically that is a super easy way to create 100 python based web apps and the reason I'm bringing it up in this context is my daughter went through and she's like, dad, I want to create a web app. I'm like, yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> There's a lot of concepts for us to cover. I mean, she's like nine at the time, right? Uh, so, but you can go through this and you can write JavaScript E, Python that runs where JavaScript would normally run. And you can drag and drop stuff and you get like a backend that's already set up. It's it's really cool. Like my daughter created at nine, created like a pretty cool little data-driven web app out of it. And I thought, okay, well, if a nine-year-old can do it, and have fun. This is actually pretty cool. Very cool. So, is it? Uh, does it just run inside Anvil when you're finished, or do you? Can you download it? It has to run inside Anvil. So you got to have an account there, basically, which is a bit of a drawback. But it also means it has the better integrations, right? Right. But what what I really like about this is one of the examples is 
so often programming is taught in terminals and REPLs and like how many beginner programmers and, and kids and stuff go, oh my God, it's so amazing. It printed, <laughs> you know, right. They're just completely, the expectation is not that I'm going to do something interesting in a terminal or whatever, right? It's, they need some visual feedback. And like one really nice way to get visual feedback is the web if it's not like too hard to make it work. And I think this strikes a good balance. Excellent. Yeah. So what are, how, you know, talk about some, some of the roadblocks and maybe like what we can do to help folks, especially who are learning in a vacuum because they don't have any colleagues or they don't really know anybody or something like this yeah boy i don't know it's it's been a it's been a a slog actually you know i mean things are getting you have to get to the point where you get the vocabulary to ask the questions and that takes a little while to get there the online space is really good for helping people but you have to have like a minimum level before you can pop your head up and not just be dismissed as like knowing nothing at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. And even just to Google, Google your question first, right? You've got to know exactly what you're trying to do in a, using the right nomenclature, right? So that's tough to get to. I think it depends on your learning style. I mean, my learning style, I, I've been following web tutorials for years and years and years. So it's pretty easy for me to just kind of get on and uh, deep search whatever I'm looking for. I don't know that I have any solutions. I'd really like to see more classes available, you know, in high school where you can get started and things like that. I'm part of a group that's trying to make that happen here in Vermont. So I think that's really where we have to get the access. Yeah, absolutely. I think it would certainly help more kids see that as an option. I think, what about mentors? Mentors would be great. It's, you still have to find a, find a place where you can kind of make those connections. You know, meetup groups and things like that could be kind of intimidating. I'm part of like a code meetup group in Burlington, but, you know, I head down and I don't know too many people there and everybody else seems to know each other there. You know, you can kind of listen to conversations and, oh, yeah, I just got a job with this new startup or whatever. It's it's not like a lot of basic meetups out there. Like WordPress has a, these things called WordCamps in there. And I, I've heard you talk a lot about PyComs, but the WordCamps are always kind of aimed at beginners as well for the most part. And I don't know that we have anything common like that because WordCamps happen kind of all over the place and they're they're really, really common. Yeah, it sounds almost like you need like a like a learning to code meetup yeah. type of uh, thing, not like a I'm a pro and here's how how we use Docker exactly. to optimize this other thing or whatever, right? Yeah. So we've got a a lot of not a lot. We have a few conventions for teachers, tech conventions throughout the year. So my goal is to kind of go and show off some of the things I'm doing with Python at those things to try and get uh, other teachers aware of kind of what can happen. Yeah, I do think there are some opportunities at some of these these main conferences like PyCon, for example. Uh, but you know, they're only once a year or maybe a couple times a year if you factor all the the local ones you could get to. You also have to be at a certain level before you're willing to say, I'm going to travel to Cleveland right. <laughs> to go to a conference for programmers, right. and, and that's going to help me get into programming. Right? That's a pretty hard stretch to make. I think it's true, but I don't think that most people would believe it. Right. Yeah, and maybe just exposure to um, some sort of language to get started. Because I've I've heard a lot of people, a lot of the guests on your show, they're always like, "Oh yeah, I used Python for a few things. I did. I, was, I started writing in this language, and and I'm here. I am learning Python. And I'm thinking to myself, that's crazy. How could you just go over and do like one thing? Like I couldn't do that in this this other language. And then um, I started. I bought a JavaScript book about four or five months ago, and I started going through. Like, oh, well, this isn't that bad. This isn't that bad. I could, you know, if I had a little task to do in this, I could do that. And so then if I want to use not jQuery for something, I feel pretty confident I can do that now and I can go and Google what I need to do because I've, I know the concepts in general. So that's, that's a big help. So, uh, you know, just exposure to some sort of language would help you if you want to then learn Python later on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely think that learning your second language is an important step, uh, whatever that programming language is. It, once you know too, you're like, oh, I've learned multiple programming languages. Now all of a sudden, the third, fourth, and fifth seem way more approachable. You know what I mean? It's not scary. If you want to go anywhere near the web, you're going to need about, you know, three or four languages under your belt that you, you know, if you just knew CSS, people would probably laugh at you. <laughs> you couldn't do anything, really. I totally agree. The web is tricky because you really do have to do three or four programming languages. You've got to do some kind of database, so SQL or something along those lines. You've got to do a, a server-side language, so Python or 
something. You've got to do JavaScript, CSS, and HTML. Maybe you can get away with no JavaScript for a while, but that's still four to five. Yeah. You can only not do JavaScript until you want people to like enjoy what they're looking at. Then you then you <laughs> then you're pretty much gonna have to do that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Interesting. I don't really know a whole lot for the learning in a vacuum stuff that'll help. I do think there's some opportunities for a couple of things. I think there are some online communities. I know there's a bunch and I don't really track them that carefully, but there's some Slack channels and like I have a Gitter channel for the podcast at gitter.im slash talk dash Python. And people go in there and ask questions like, Hey, I'm trying to do this. Any ideas on which is better or how I should do that? And sometimes there's a lot of good conversation there. There's the Pythonista cafe from real Python and Dan Bader. There's the PyBytes Slack channels. Those are all places people could drop in and, you know, talk to other folks that are maybe at different levels, you know, or, or at their level rather. Yeah, there's still, there's still that human side of things that really in the early days can help. Yeah. I definitely, when I started programming, it was very much in isolation. Maybe there was one other person that kind of knew some stuff in the very early days. And then, you know, it's just a, a hand, like two or three of us at a company of scientists or other places, right? Where we all knew some stuff, but it it was definitely a lot of a challenge to yeah. To Even just one person that, that uh, you can kind of geek out with and talk about different things or you know concepts and stuff. It just it just really really helps. Yeah. So I've been I've, I'm concentrating on growing the uh, number of uh, budding coders around me. <laughs> yeah, you pass that automate the boring stuff around. That's right. <laughs> for, hey, have you seen this? Check this out. That's really cool. One other thing that you did bring up that that may be interesting is Python Anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Have you used that? So as soon as I started making my web app, I I basically you know had to figure out how to get it out there uh, to the wide world. And I've always used Bluehost as like my web host, and it was uh, I started looking at how to run Python on it, and it just didn't seem like it was going to be possible. There were like ways you could hack it you know, to make it happen, but there wasn't like a, a path to getting something on there. So uh, then asking around again, I, f- I found Python anywhere and it was uh, really, really easy to start. Other than the fact that the very first app that I tried to put on there, as soon as I put it on there, the home directory was different. So everything was broken. I think I almost cried. It was, yeah, I'd worked for three months getting this work on my computer. And then I put it up on there. I was so psyched that it just broke. So spent about two days going back in there and, and uh, re- rewriting all the paths. But yeah, it was great once I got it working. And Python Anywhere allows you to put up, uh, it gives you one site, you know, you're just going to get, uh, you know, your username dot Python Anywhere. It's free. If, so if you're just playing around and learning how to do things, it's a great, great resource. I've been trying to get my app on DigitalOcean just because I want to be able to, I, I like the pricing structure for DigitalOcean. Like I'm ready to take it to the next level and have a little bit more control over things. But I followed the tutorial so many times and um, I get to a certain point, everything's working, everything's working. Then I try and do the Gunicorn level and nothing. So uh, that's a a bridge I'm going to cross one of these days. Yeah, that's definitely a challenge. I mean, both you you touched on this at a couple levels at the, like, I just, I I built this thing. It's working. How do I get it on the internet? Like that is, you know, for a lot of folks, that is a huge challenge because they probably don't have a whole lot of Linux admin experience, something like Bluehost. They they maybe don't really support Python, but you already have an account with them. Like, well, how can I cram my Python app (laughs) into their structure? And that probably doesn't fit. It's definitely another step that you have to take yeah. uh, going through these where it's, it's certainly a challenge. Yeah, I was on Reddit actually explaining problems because it gets down to this sockets issue and you got to say, you know, it's got to go to this socket. And I, and I know it's some kind of like a permission problem, but so I was trying to explain it on there and I was kept going. It's like, ah, oh, it works great on Python anywhere. But as soon as I get over here, the guy's like, well, if you don't really understand sockets, maybe you should just be on Python anywhere. So I'm like, well, maybe there's some truth to that. So <laughs> so I've given <laughs> up for the for the time being and, and just kind of... Uh, going there. But if I, if I wanted to create something serious, uh, that would be a roadblock for me. So, and I guess there's other places. Well, I totally understand what he's, he's saying there, but at the same time, how will you ever understand sockets if you don't right. beat your head through to against this wall and, and get through it on Linux and get the thing set up, right? Like it's, it's not like, well, you just need another more year experience and right. sockets will be obvious, <laughs> right? Like, you know, Linux sockets uh, right. for tr- transporting between Nginx and Genicorn, right? Like that, 
that skill is not like you're going to ambiently pick that up, right? right? You have to just go through that step. And, and maybe, I mean, maybe more time, it would be easier. But at the same time, I, I don't know. I do think there's a lot of power in learning how to just deploy your app on Linux, right? Whether that's Linode, DigitalOcean, or, or something else. I think those are some of the, the really best hosts, right? That's like the next level, right? You could actually make what you want happen. Because one of the things that coding has done for me is made me feel like a little kid again. Like I can do anything, you know, like not, I can't do anything, but you know what I mean? It's made me feel like my, yeah. you know, my computer is is this huge, like wonderful machine that I can create stuff on. Uh, and that's been a wonderful, wonderful feeling. But then if you can't show it to anybody and get it out there in the world, it definitely falls a little short uh, because then it's just you telling people what you did <laughs> as opposed yeah, to being able to show off, you know, what you created. So it was great to find Python anywhere. It was really, really was awesome. And it's a great resource. And, you know, it's just a little bit more expensive than any other options. So it's easy enough to get your stuff out there, but to take it to that next level, there's definitely, you know, I mean, there's experience and skill that needs to to happen to make that happen. I definitely appreciate that. It makes me feel like a kid again, right? Like when you're a kid, you feel like you can build anything. Like think of the days of like Lego or Hot Wheels or all those kinds of things that you fiddle with as kids, right? The little building block stuff. And it's just like, yeah. I can do that in the digital world. You're going from being a consumer to being a creator again. Like uh, we did this thing, I Love My School Week uh, two years ago at my school. And it was, uh, you know, it's I Love My School Week. My my principal comes down and she's like, oh, can we get every kid in the school to tweet during this time? I was like, well, I don't really know. We don't really want to give them the password, you know. Uh, so she's like, well, I'll tell you what, you get it all in a Google form and I will sit and I'll set my alarm and I'll tweet every five minutes. I'll tweet, you know, three of them out. And I'm like, I don't think that's probably how you should be spending your time. I think we could figure out something different. So um, yeah, we, you know, we spent all this time looking around on, online and we found something that worked with Google Sheets and it was this auto tweeter and everything. Well, last year for this event, I created that. You know, I, I wrote it and it was, you know, it was rock solid. I did exactly what we wanted instead of having to, you know, we probably tried out seven different systems years before, before we were coding. So it just gives us that ability to take control of those types of tasks. That's so cool. Just like, cause it's not that big of a project. No, it isn't really. But it can make a big difference to who, who it's for, right? Yeah. You find out what Python package you need and you write a loop and that was it. It was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The real danger is that it goes crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we did get a few complaints that people telling us that we were tweeting a little too much, but it wasn't my idea. I was just carrying it out just in my defense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, if it gets stuck in a loop or something, yeah, <laughs> then, then you'd have a lot of tweets. That'd be bad. But no, that, that's really, really cool. You also, you talked about building stuff again and, and be a creator. I, I think one of the things that would be really nice that you talked about would be to have little devices or IoT things for kids, right? Yeah. And there's definitely some good options for Python there. Yeah. I listened to your podcast where you interviewed the guy that uh, did the Python for Microbits or not Microbits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Microbits. And uh, I went to, that was the same weekend we had this convention and I went down there and I got to play with Microbits for the very first time, like an hour and a half after, because I listened to your podcast while I was driving to it. And it was fantastic. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm pretty psyched about microbits now, I have to say. So um, my wife is is English. We used to live there for a while. We were first married. So I've, I've kind of connected a lot to, I follow a lot of English kind of education news. I was pretty excited to be able to get a hold of these things. And I'd really like to kind of replicate what they did in England, kind of here in Vermont. I haven't taken any steps towards right, with it the yet. the whole BBC microbit and, yeah, and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, trying to get one in uh, every sixth grader's hands would be amazing. So that's uh, one of my long-term goals here. It's maybe shorter term goals, but just to try and seek out funding, you know, from some Vermont businesses and things like that. Cause we've got a couple of cool big tech companies here that might be amenable to something like that, but they're really, really great for kids just to kind of see what they're doing. You hold it in your hand and, and see the effects of your code. Yeah. I definitely think one of the keys in the early stages of getting involved in this kind of stuff is early feedback, quick feedback, and visual feedback of some type, right? Right. And if you're putting together a little device and, you know, the fan blows every time you walk by it or, you know, it counts the number of people that walk through the door, like that's pretty pretty concrete. Yeah, very cool. And Scratch just made, um, Scratch just updated Tuesday or Wednesday. And now uh, it's got an extension in there so you can write in Scratch. It'll show up on the micro bits even. So it's very, very neat kind of bridge for kids to get that. Yeah, and they're not super expensive. You know, it's not like trying to get a laptop for everybody. It's right. It feels like it's half a funding problem and half a bureaucracy problem. Right. Yeah. Making people think that it's uh, realize that it's important. You know, that's the, that's always yeah. the challenge. <laughs> We're lucky that we have uh, the BBC and the UK for 
plowing through and doing that the first time. And they've got like, you know, one of the podcasts I did with Nicholas about that, we talked a lot about the results, right? They have not just having done it, but they did like sort of studied the outcomes, which I thought was really cool as well. Yeah. They lead the way in quite a few different things. I mean, they were put, they put smart boards, you know, and everybody in every room in the entire country, you know, all at once and, and things like that, that really make a big impact. Things that you can't do because of the way our education system structured compared to theirs. So it's pretty neat. Right. Yeah. A lot of uh, other countries have very like more nationwide, the same education. Right. Whereas us, you know, there's cities or towns five miles apart have totally different (laughs) bureaucracies manage that, right? It's, it's quite different. We have a more different here. Every, uh, my kids go to a a school of uh, 106 children and they have their own school board. It's, (laughs) it's unique. (laughs) Yeah. Unique. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, another thing you were talking about is, uh, computer science education and Python. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm a member of a computer science advocacy group for Vermont, and the, the, some people from the state education agency are, are involved, and then there's a number of educators involved as well. And we're just kind of running into this thing where um, I'm probably the only uh, Pythonista in the group. I think uh, there's a lot of Java teachers because your AP computer science stuff is, is uses Java. Right. So if you want to be an AP computer science teacher in the United States, you basically had to learn Java. And once you learn Java, if you're not a programmer, why would you learn other languages, huh? Exactly. Exactly. Or, you know, there's just, it's just kind of an old school mindset, you know, this right nowadays, you probably want to have a few different languages available. But anyway, so we're really struggling with the number of people who can teach computer science, you know, it's, uh, it's not an easy subject to necessarily grasp the amount of teachers that we have in there. And one of the things I always say is if you have a computer science degree, you're probably going to go and make a lot more money than you are, instead of deciding to come in and be a teacher and spend most of your day trying to tell kids to get off their phones and pay attention or do whatever rather than uh, (laughs) work at an office and and not have to deal with those types of things. So yeah, so we're trying to kind of increase the amount of people who can teach computer science and just kind of on an introductory level. I don't think, I don't know how much there's going to be into getting people into, you know, being able to teach AP classes and things like that, but you got to start somewhere. Absolutely. Well, you know, if if you got, let's say, a hundred teachers to learn Python and be able to teach it at a basic level, surely some of them would just pick up things like automate the boring stuff. They would get interested and they would just naturally get better. I think in our entire state, they figured we had 43 people that were qualified. <laughs> so it's, yeah, so there's a, there's a number of challenges again. And, you know, a lot of them are, are older folks too, that are, that are on their way out of education. So it's, uh, yeah, there's lots of challenges in there to getting it started. I'd like to see more teachers learn basic coding because a lot of what's going on in schools right now is teaching regular teachers how to teach some, you know, some things. And there's a lot of like, we'll learn with the kids and that type of stuff, as opposed to, I'd love to see more and more teachers just take a, an introductory Python course and, you know, and, and actually, yeah, maybe pick up, automate the boring stuff and, and see the value in those types of things. I think if you could get your average teacher to realize that, that coding isn't just something that they're going to do for an hour on Tuesdays is that it could be interesting in general and just get that, you know, to see somebody's eyes light up when the first time that they, you know, they write a program that, that creates a file on their computer and and then writes to it or something is just uh, really powerful. Yeah, or there's some project, there's something that they were doing over, like some report they've got to write every month that was dreadful. Yeah, and then all of a sudden they can push a button and you know, half a second later, it's done. Like, right. That's like, oh, yeah. this is like a magic wand. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I wrote a program that uh, went through and uh, so we, we have training, uh, you know, beginning of the year trainings, bloodborne pathogens, all that kind of stuff. And and normally everybody has to uh, sign off on a piece of paper. Well, they, they, they made that uh, electronic a couple of years ago and then it was always, um, so then I created like a spreadsheet that aggregated everything just, you know, just using Google, Google apps. And then uh, every two weeks I get an email from my principal that said, oh, hey, how many people still need to complete this, this and that? And I have to go through it and write it all, you know type or copy and paste it into an email and send it to her. And then she would contact everybody. Well, I automated that the other day, our beginning of this year with, uh, with Python. And now it just sends out the emails to people, you know, on Friday afternoons or Monday mornings. I think I did it Monday morning. So they wouldn't just 
say it was a Friday afternoon. Yeah. And <laughs> those types, I actually got a hug from my assistant principal when I wrote that one because she was so excited that it was actually, it was working and people uh, were finishing what they needed to do on time. So that was pretty cool. Those types of projects are fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Like she no longer has to be the bad person who goes around and nags everyone about something. Yep. And she gets an email saying uh, also, you know, I, I, I just made two lists, one list for the people who are going to get the email, one list for her of everybody who was going to get an email. And then she gets an email with all the people on it. So it was a great solution, if I don't say so myself. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. It's actually um, highlights uh, an interesting thing that you hear a lot around code reviews, right? So code reviews, you look at the code and other more, probably more, at least equally experienced programmers look at it and go, well, this is good, but you need to change this or that. And there's a lot of stuff that just linters and other automated systems can do like, oh, the indent is wrong here. This line is too long. This function has too many lines, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like when people sort of nitpick like that, they come across as this annoying person that always nitpicks on the details when we're trying to talk about something more important, right? Right. But if just an automated build tells you, hey, your code is not quite right because X, Y, and Z, like that doesn't cause the same emotional reaction, as it does if that kind of stuff. Kind of, so it feels like it must be similar here, right? I created a dummy account to send the uh, emails out from, so it wasn't me. <laughs> so there's <laughs> that's a, a good idea. There's my school automated, you know, email yeah, yeah. account now. So <laughs> yeah, and it's the same type of thing. It's right, like the well, the system knows I haven't done it. It says I have to do it, so I guess I'll do it. So I stop getting this email, or eventually <laughs> someone's going to talk to me. But right, like taking it away from having the person do the nagging is, is, is kind of a nice touch. One final thing we have time for, and then we'll have to, to wrap it up. Sure. You had some thoughts about music education and programming education. Yeah. So one of your podcasts recently, you were saying that uh, geometry was a good place to replace good class to replace computer science with. And I, I really yeah. thought that was a great suggestion, actually. Uh, I've been telling that to people since then, but I've always, I've always figured that music was a great example of what the education has done to kind of create more musicians in the world, right? So in my school, there's around 600 kids and we have two music teachers, no computer teachers. Well, I'm, I mean, I, I kind of fulfill that role, but no official, you know, computer curriculum that goes all the way through. But we, we have a, an instrumental teacher and a vocal teacher and they go through and every kid gets exposed to it. And when you get in fourth grade, then you get to choose an instrument and you get, and you get small group lessons and things like that. And then uh, you go on and my best friend is the music teacher at the, at the middle school and high school. And then he gets the same kind of cadre of kids that go all the way through and they do, they do all these activities. And it's, you know, it's, it's a very select group that has chosen to kind of be in this thing, but then you get a lot of musicians out of this people who have chosen to go into that, you know, they get pulled out of class because it's important to get to their individual lessons they put on concerts, all this. That's a lot of effort to go into this thing that isn't math, science, or reading. And I think that's a great model that we could do with computers. Like what if we, so I, I went to this computer science teacher conference in Rhode Island. We all drove down in this van for like six hours together. And uh, everybody in the van was a musician except me, you know, right? And they were all computer people. I could imagine going to like some kind of music weekend or music teacher convention and looking around in the van and having like, you know, six out of seven people be programmers as well would be pretty cool. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's something to aim for. That's awesome. Yeah. Everybody, everybody learns the kazoo and then you pick your instrument. You know, what if everybody learned scratch and then you got to pick it, you know, you got to either go the uh, JavaScript or Python way afterwards or whatever, you know, whatever it might be just to, to, to funnel that and, and support it in the same way we do with music. And if you want to see parents get up in arms about something, try and cancel a music program. It will go bats over something like that. Yeah, for sure. The point of the music program is not to make everybody a musician, right? Right. And, well, a professional musician. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> a professional musician, right? Like as their job, right? It's not like, well, you first take this music class and that music class so that then you can go start the next Pearl Jam or whatever. It's just <laughs> so you have some you know, musical skills, right? For life. Everybody agrees that music is important and everybody agrees that it's a life enriching thing. Everybody agrees that, you know, we want more music in the world and that it's valuable for kids to do this. So we're going to put these resources into it. And you got to wonder why, you know, why, why technology isn't to that quite same level. Although technology does kind of bleed into just about everything else at this point. So it's, could be different. So it does bleed in, but it almost always bleeds in, in the sense that it's a consumer right. situation. Right. Yeah. Like Good I'm point. doing biology class. So I use 
SAS to do the stats on my lab, right? But I didn't, <laughs> I didn't create. We spend all of our time trying to find the perfect tool to do this instead of creating a tool that might help it, you know, like, oh, we have to sort through all these other things and figure out what might do this. Exactly. Exactly. So, yep, I'm still of the belief that geometry is interesting, but not as, as useful as programming and the same types of things, logical thinking, like sort of proof type stuff, all that. It's the same as programming. Agreed. You've converted me. Awesome. <laughs> well, I have no control over the geometry anywhere, but I, I can at least say my say my thoughts. I did. I do have a couple of math degrees, so I've I've thought about it some. And I got uh, quite far in my math education without really using much. I learned it all in geometry. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> we'll leave it at that, I guess. All right. So, um, Rusty, I think we have to put the main conversation and sort of leave it there. All right. But it's time for the two questions as always. So if you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you use? Adam. Yeah, Adam's cool. Yeah, I had a student show it to me uh, when we were in my HTML class and uh, I've been a huge fan. I, I kind of thought, why isn't he using what I've told him to use? And I started using it after he left class that <laughs> night. It's wonderful. I really like it. <laughs> this, this kid won't listen to me. Wait, this kid's really bright. <laughs> <laughs> he was right. I never let him know that, but he was. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And uh, notable PyPI package? I love PyG Sheets. Is that for talking to Google Sheets? It does. It talks to Google Sheets and allows you to just kind of manipulate them as Python objects and do all kinds of things. And uh, I kind of consider them like a poor man's database. So that's pretty much yeah. how we use them. We're able to have you know people enter things into Google Sheets, which is really easy to get information in there. And then I could do all kinds of cool stuff with it in Python once it's in there. Yeah, I can see that being really useful for organizations like yours where... You're not going to build a whole app for them to do a thing, but if you can share a Google sheet with them and then just code against that, like they can still do their manual entry, but then you can generate all the analysis just you by pushing a button or typing a CLI command. Yep. It's all out there in the web too. You don't have to, you know, get people access to it or have a server or anything like that, that, uh, that people have access yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. It's online and shared without you running infrastructure. Yeah, very cool. All right. So final call to action, people are, are learning Python or, or learning to teach Python. What do you have for them? I would say automate the boring stuff, uh, code combat would be great. And REPL it if you're trying, if you're in a teaching situation, that's a great place where you can share code and, and check things out. Yeah. All right. Well, it was really interesting to talk about all these ideas with you. And uh, I've got some stuff to go check out as well. So thanks, Rusty. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest on this episode was Rusty Gregory, and it's been brought to you by Linode and Rollbar. Linode is your go-to hosting for whatever you're building with Python. Get four months free at talkpython.fm slash Linode. That's L-I-N-O-D-E. Rollbar takes the pain out of errors. They give you the context and insight you need to quickly locate and fix errors that might have gone unnoticed, until users complain, of course. Track a ridiculous number of errors for free as TalkPython to me listeners at talkpython.fm slash rollbar. Want to level up your Python? If you're just getting started, try my Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps course. Or if you're looking for something more advanced, check out our new async course that digs into all the different types of async programming you can do in Python. And of course, if you're interested in more than one of these, be sure to check out our Everything Bundle. It's like a subscription that never expires. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.